Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm thrilled to have with me today Dr. Lee Goodell, who is a fantastic colleague. Lee is a cardiac anesthesiologist. He's an assistant professor of anesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins. Great colleague. We've worked together in the ICUs, and Lee also does cardiac anesthesia. And he's done a ton of work with ultrasound. So obviously, as part of a cardiac anesthesia fellowship, he learned TE, but he also did an extensive additional amount of training uh, so that he's actually... Uh, and I'll, I'll have him tell us specifically, but he's basically uh, done what a cardiology fellow would do in terms of the amount of training and the amount of certification he has. And so we are going to talk today about a basic overview of point of care ultrasound and what that looks like for a practitioner finishing training today. Lee, thanks so much for coming on the show. Jed, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you on ACRAC um, and uh, talk about a topic that uh, is very near and dear to me, part of my research, part of uh, our ICU training program here at Johns Hopkins, uh, one in which we're developing, and I think is going to become more and more important uh, for the whole anesthesiology community. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I should have said, of course, Lee also runs our uh, critical care fellowship here at Johns Hopkins and does an amazing job with that. And so this is really becoming um, an exciting part of critical care training, thinking about using the ultrasound. And actually, I think we're going to hopefully, Lee, do a follow-up episode where we'll get into critical care ultrasound, uh, something that now has an exam you can take, which you took, Lee, as one of the first people ever to take. Um, and so that's really exciting, too. But today, we're going to focus more on the general just point-of-care ultrasound, not specific to critical care. And so tell me, did I have it right, Lee? You've done training to kind of have the same level of certification as a cardiologist, right, or a cardi- cardiology fellow. That's right. So um, anticipating the changes coming with ultrasound and the permeation of that technology into our care, as a cardiac fellow and an ICU fellow, I sent, spent six months with our cardiologists here uh, at Johns Hopkins, uh, working with them primarily in the echo lab and training really as one of their fellows would uh, in echocardiography and uh, passed their boards and got their endorsement really to develop our research and education mission here at Johns Hopkins. Fantastic. Really awesome job. All right. So let's talk about POCUS. Uh, What does that mean? What is POCUS? So POCUS um, is a bit of an ambiguous word. Uh, Certainly it means point of care ultrasound, but I imagine a lot of the, the listeners, when you hear that, it means something different probably to each of you that are that are hearing this. Why do I say that? Well, it means even a different thing to different specialties right now in medicine. POCUS to a medical student looks a lot different than it did for us when we were medical students Absolutely. as it's being incorporated uh, into most medical school curricula for the physical exam. Um, so I think a lot of what I'd like to talk about is POCUS for the anesthesiology resident, for the general anesthesiologist in the future. And a lot of these 
opinions are that. We're developing what should be standard for our next generation of anesthesiologists, a lot of that that we're doing within our own training programs here. Um, But I think that that's sort of what we'll lay out. So point-of-care ultrasound is really utilizing uh, the technology of imaging of ultrasound at the bedside to help you guide clinical decision-making. Yeah, and that's it's super exciting. I mean, you you referenced medical students, and I think that's so interesting. You know, when we think about when when we you know had our white coat ceremony for medical school, right? And we got our first stethoscope, and the idea was, and of course, always had been that the stethoscope was the primary tool for diagnosis of a patient. And now that's really changing, where we think we have this, or we not think we do, we have this other tool that can do so much, and so that's what's really exciting. Exactly. And a lot of this is driven, it's almost a Moore's Law type of moment that we're in for ultrasound, where the cost of ultrasound has reached a minimum, whereas, uh, and I have no financial commitments or connections, but there are some ultrasounds uh, for only a couple thousand dollars you connect to your iPhone. And certainly when we were med students, that just wasn't possible. So that has really opened up a tremendous um, opportunity for how we deliver care at the bedside. Um, and how that looks, we believe, uh, for anesthesiologists, like, as, as we said, is evolving. And uh, I think the best way to think of it is to first look at systems, so different systems of where that can be um, applied. But then additionally, throughout the whole conversation, you have to have some really important themes in mind at every step of the, of, of the discussion. Yeah, great. Well, so let's do it. Let's go by system and near and dear to your heart. Let's start with cardiac, no pun intended. Um, What is the POCUS approach to cardiac? Does it have its own name? So starting with the cardiac system, the American Society of Echocardiography is a great resource that has um, all of their guidelines available for free on the internet. Um, So I recommend you all look at that and we'll post some of those resources um on onto the show uh show show for uh, availability for everyone yeah we'll put them in the show notes for sure what the american society of echocardiography has done really well ha- they have defined the scope of different types of exams uh, and as I mentioned before, there are a couple of important themes that you have to take with you when you look at POCUS. So the first most important is thinking about your scope of practice. So what what is your background knowledge? What is your background training in ultrasound? So you are both going to answer the clinical question that you uh, that you have, uh, but then importantly, not miss important things that you might not be capable of recognizing, or misdiagnose something. So that is uh, how the scope of practice comes into play. And with regard to cardiac ultrasound, there are three levels of exams. So the first is called focus, a focused cardiac uh, uh, ultrasound exam. In addition. Uh, on the, uh, on the website, uh, we'll post two really useful articles to guide the, the, the listeners to starting to think about how to do a focused cardiac ultrasound exam. Is this is the most relevant level of exam to, uh, to, the, to the beginner with POCUS. And make, uh, make no mistake, this is a very powerful exam that can tell you 
some very important information, but again, within a limited scope of practice. And that's really key. I just want to emphasize that you know what you don't want is someone to say, oh, I put the ultrasound on the chest. Uh, therefore, I know there's you know no PE, no tamponade, no right. I mean, if you can, t- if you have the skills and the scope of practice to make those determinations, great. If you don't, you want to be very careful not to for yourself or not to give anyone else the idea that you've excluded anything just because you put a probe on the chest when you don't. You may not have that ability. Absolutely. So, in more detail, what a what a focused cardiac ultrasound can look for are LV enlargement. LV hypertrophy, LV systolic function, left atrial enlargement, right ventricular enlargement, right ventricular systolic function, a pericardial effusion being present or not, and the, the inferior, inferior vena cava size. And importantly, uh, this type of exam should be triggered based upon a clinical question and really um, be developed to have a binary answer. This is present or it's not present. Uh, and understand that, that, that someone doing a focused ultrasound uh, isn't, uh, isn't appropriately trained for looking at a full uh, ultrasound of the heart. Um, and that's, uh, leading, that's a good point to lead into the other types of cardiac ultrasound evaluations. Um, and those are both, uh, first, the limited and then the comprehensive cardiac uh, echocardiogram evaluation. Again, these are very well delineated by the American Society of Echo. Um, and this is how h- here where we train folks, we really try to give them guidance on the scope of their practice. So how the limited and comprehensive exams differ are they really are looking at a larger protocol, more structures of the heart, um, with uh, higher expectations and quality of the exam performed and then quality of the information uh, that is reported. Yeah, so that's really key. And what I think we're talking about at the level of the anesthesia resident or, you know, a practitioner out there is really the first that you mentioned is that FOCUS, which stands for Focused Cardiac Ultrasound. Um, and, you know, still complicated stuff, but definitely I think this is the kind of stuff that you're you're using on an everyday basis if you're not a cardiac-trained anesthesiologist, if you're not a cardiology-trained practitioner. Yeah, and so to follow up with the conversation, that additional time I spent with the cardiologist was really to be trained to do the those two later, the limited and the comprehensive examinations in our patients. Right. So the things you mentioned that we look at in the focused exam are essentially LV size and function, left atrial enlargement, right ventricular size and function, um, and then for a pericardial effusion and IVC size. That's correct. And and to hammer the point home again, before you pick up the probe, the point is to ask a really narrow question that you're going to try to answer yes or no and not expect to really find anything else. Right. And so let's let's give an example. You might say, does this patient have you know, the patient is hypotensive, tachycardic uh, after a pacemaker placement, and we want to know, does the patient have pericardial effusion or even tamponade? That's correct. And um, that would that would fit within this. Um, but I think still, if there was any ambiguity with what was seen on ultrasound, um, there should be additional support already triggered. Absolutely. So um, because 
you know, this type of clinical situation uh, that, that you described is so important not to get it wrong. This is really a, the first off, the, the first shot at the bedside with someone making clinical decisions. Um, but it really should be validated uh, by either a limited or comprehensive echo, or as we'll talk about in the future, a critical care echo mm-hmm. as well before, say, um, intervention is ordered. Right. And I would say, and please correct me if you disagree, but in my mind, things like that, like is the, does the patient have a massive PE or does the patient have pericardial tamponade are – you know, if I'm looking for that, it's only because I'm waiting for the tech to come do a, a comprehensive or, or focused exam, I mean, or limited exam. On the other hand, if a patient is fine, but I'm trying to figure out, you know, do they, do they need a little volume or maybe they just need to titrate up their pressors a little bit, but they're, you know, it's just a kind of question. I could also just try one or the other, but I'm like, oh, well, I have this ultrasound here and maybe I can take a look at the IVC and see if it looks plump or if it's really collapsible. I probably will do that without calling for a formal echo. So there are some questions, right, that we think, well, yeah, this can help you with if you have if you have the basic training to be able to do it without necessarily needing the more extensive, limited, or comprehensive exam, and other questions where you absolutely are only doing this so you can get a little information while you're waiting for the comprehensive exam. Absolutely. So re- uh, so repeating the themes, one is knowing your scope of practice, what you are trained to do and then second recognizing the intensity and the significance of the clinical situation also appreciating the fact that this patient could be sicker than you might otherwise believe um and and so you know a third theme is trying to be as thoughtful about your clinical decision making as possible Absolutely. So clearly, uh, to be able to do this, you can't just listen to a podcast and then say, now I can go uh, do a, a focused cardiac ultrasound. But let's try to just go over some basic stuff. Like what views do you get as part of your uh, ultrasound, your focused exam? Absolutely. So I'll also refer the, the listeners to the nuts and bolts of performing focused cardiovascular ultrasound that we're going to have available for you. Um, but basically, there are, are four main views. Uh, and uh, you'll first start with the parasternal long axis and then the parasternal short axis, the apical forechamber, and the parasternal subcostal uh, – sorry, the, the subcostal forechamber view. So those four views really make up most focused cardiac ultrasound examinations. Great. And are you looking for you know, certain things with each view? You are with each view, uh, and again, this is limited by the scope of, of the exam, and so it's a, it's a good way to also support the, that theme discussion that, that we had before. Um, certainly want to see, uh, in terms of ventricular function that we mentioned, you want to see squeezing of both the left and right ventricle. Um, you want to look at size, so if Either, either chamber looks grossly enlarged, that suggests there also could be dysfunction. Uh, and uh, in every view, we're evaluating for pericardial effusion as well. Great. Um, and then you mentioned uh, that you also can look at the IVC. Often you're looking there for collapsibility, uh, maybe response to a straight leg raise um, to evaluate whether the patient uh, might be fluid responsive. 
And that is also going to be in the subcostal view, is that right? That is in the subcostal view. And I'll say, too, this is going to be very dependent on the clinical situation. Um, for instance, the spontaneously ventilating patient is going to be different than your mechanically ventilated uh, patient. So, uh, again, coming back to a scope of practice um, discussion, and you know, you still could harm someone by bolusing fluid not recognizing that they might have cardiac dysfunction. Mm -hmm. um, however, I do think that the data is pretty strong that if you see a collapsed, really underfilled IVC, fluid is usually not going to be harmful. So I do think that that is a, a useful takeaway. Great. So let's look at a couple things. If you are concerned about uh, cardiac function, you think maybe the patient had a, a big MI and they are... Um, their LV may not be functioning well. Definitely you're waiting for the formal echo. In the meantime, you take a look. What's the best view to get a feel for the cardiac wall motion? I think that no one view is ever going to be sufficient. Uh, if you see something abnormal, you should always try to validate it in a second view, sort of a radiologist's approach yep. uh, <laughs> by the cardiac anesthesiologist to ultrasound. Um, but that's because... Anatomy can be deceiving in one view alone. Um, so the four views that I described, um, I, I think it's imperative to try to see an abnormality in at least more than one view. And there are some uh, really interesting studies demonstrating that you don't have to be a, uh, an expert in ultrasound to demonstrate ventricular functional abnormalities. Um, very interestingly, there is uh, a study done in, um, in California on athletes uh, where medical students uh, were, without a whole great deal of training, have been able to uh, uh, delineate ventricular abnormalities. So again, when I talk about you need a binary question before you look at these echoes, uh, really normal or abnormal is a great place to start, and that's what a focus cardiac ultrasound should do for you. Yeah. And, you know, would you agree? I think that often when, when we as non-cardiology or cardiac uh, anesthesiology trained folks uh, are doing this, we're, we're more comfortable if we see something saying, okay, I see something. For example, if, if, I, if there's just one of those walls is not moving, I think, okay, you know, I don't know, maybe more going on here, but that I see a wall not moving. Or if I see a, um, you know, a huge amount of fluid around the heart, again, that doesn't look normal. But not seeing it is less useful to me uh, because, again, I don't have all that training. My scope of practice is different than yours. And so if I say, well, it, I can't see a wall motion abnormality, that's less helpful to me in terms of I'm not willing to say, therefore, it's not there. If I see it, I see it. If I don't see it, then uh, all I can say is I didn't see it. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, and I think... Um Going into uh, your imaging with your binary question, um, recognizing that there could be a third option of, well, it could be there, but I'm not sure. Right. I think it's just important to be honest. Yep. Um, and again, if this is a, a, an unstable patient or someone you're concerned about, um, that you do have other resources coming to that patient's aid. Great. All right. So – Anything else on the cardiac side uh, that you think we should cover? Yes, because I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to spend all day, but it's not where POCUS uh, 
ends. And uh, and I think it, it would be great then to go into talking about basic pocus for the lungs. Yep. Great. All right. So very quickly before we move on, I guess, you know, in my mind, and again, maybe this so that's why I want to ask you, um, if I'm looking for, uh, and, and I know I'm, this is like trying to get the, the expert to hedge, uh, but you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking, all right, I, I want to look for wall motion. If I had to pick one view, I'm going to do the peristernal, peristernal short again, not because if I don't see anything, that means all is good, but I like that I see four walls and I can look. Again, please tell me I'm crazy or I shouldn't be doing this. Also, uh, if I'm looking at, again, the IVC, obviously we're subcostal. Um, I think if I'm looking for um, the RV uh, size, I like to look at the apical forechamber because um, I can see the RV and the LV next to each other. And if the RV is a lot bigger than the LV, that tells me, gee, I need to think about this. So those are just a couple things I have in my mind, but maybe they're wrong. So you tell me. I think wall motion is a good example of of a of a really complicated, difficult clinical situation. Um, that it's it's important to talk about. I'm glad you brought it up because um, anytime a wall motion abnormality is reported, it triggers a tremendous amount of other workup, as you can totally appreciate. Yeah. Worrying about uh, coronary flow. Um, and so, uh, really within the focus scope of care, it is not, uh, it's not there. Um, okay. and I, so I think that, um, meaning you're not looking for that. That's yeah, not part of what's included. It, it's, it's technically from the American society of echo, not something that we should, we should really even expect someone who's starting out, um, or who's even, um, pretty well-versed in POCUS cardiac ultrasound um, to be responsible to call one way or the other. Both overcalling it can maybe trigger too many cardiac catheterizations or undercalling it, maybe we miss, miss MIs. Yeah. So um, the, it's, it, it, you know, when you use that to compare the limited and the comprehensive exam, those are more responsible for wall motion. And I can say that wall motion is one of the hardest skills to really uh, delineate. Yep. And um, let me just say that, uh, emphasize again, at my, even at, at my level, and I'm a little farther out than just, you know, fresh out of fellowship, I still am absolutely only looking at the, if I'm looking for it, it's just while I'm waiting for the more formal echo. And I would also say that what I'm looking for is huge, right? I'm like, is the EF zero? Or is the EF, you know, normal-ish? I'm not – I absolutely am not distinguishing whether it's 45 or 55, right? That's not, you know, what I'm doing. And I'm not trying – I am not saying, well, there might be a slight hypokinesis of the, you know, anterior. That's not in my scope of practice. I'm saying, you know, is half the heart motionless or not? That's the kind of thing. And even that is while I'm waiting for a formal echo. So, you know, in that sense, maybe it's helpful. But I'm, But it's good to know from you – that it's not actually even included in the focus uh, exam as something you should be looking for. And I think that's because what we don't want is people relying on it. You know, again, if you're going to look because you've got 15 minutes before the echo tech shows up, then you, you're going to look. And, you know, again, if you see that there's no motion in a, in a couple walls, that's probably useful information. You still want that formal echo. But good that good to know, right? That's not actually considered part of the scope. And, I, and yeah, I mean, and I apologize because you're talking to a bit of an echo nerd. Um, and uh, as hopefully we'll delineate in further discussions, 
um, you know, there are some terms uh, when you talk about more advanced comprehensive analysis of cardiac anatomy that get thrown around by people. Um, so systolic function is is sort of a global assessment of the whole ventricle. When you talk about wall motion, you do get to be more of an echo nut like me, and you start to think about the 16 or 17 different segments and think about coronary anatomy and and which segments correspond to which. So um, I, I think I think this is this is a, a, this is just a wonderful example of that. And um, and I think you know back to what you mentioned about the different views and what you're looking for at, at each view is completely appropriate. Um, and I think, um, you know, uh, again, the list, LV enlargement, LV hypertrophy, LV systolic function, LA enlargement, RV enlargement, RV systolic function, pericardial effusion, and inferior vena, vena cava size. If I were an anesthesiology resident, I would learn how to just do those basic large yes or no questions, big, not big, yep. functional, not functional, start there. And that's still a tremendous amount to get really good at. And hopefully with the resources we provided you, you have a place to start. Yep. One other thing. So uh, when I think about views, again, love to get your thoughts on this. If I'm trying to assess for uh, volume status, uh, uh, with one of the four views we talked about, uh, there you hear this parasternal short looking for that, you know, kind of the um, papillary muscles kissing sign, right? So if you do a parasternal short and you see your papillary muscles coming together and touching, you hear all this all the time. People will say, well, I, you know, that they, their LV was collapsing completely, so they're empty. Is there any use in that or is that a bad, bad uh, way to go? So um, I, I'll... I'll just say, you know, again, using the scope here, um, I think that that's beyond the scope even of here. And the reason for that, I'll give you a great example. Um, it's really common in right heart failure uh, to, with a parasternal short axis view, you see the right heart, you see the left heart usually, but with a really dilated RV, you might not see the right heart very well, and you might only see the LV that's empty and hyperdynamic with the papillary muscles kissing, so to speak. Um, and the reflex from this examination, people will give more fluid in the setting of right heart failure. Uh, so what you're talking about in terms of volume assessment is now being incorporated really more into the critical care ultrasound mm -hmm. or the, the limited or comprehensive. And I'd love to come back to you and talk, talk to you more about that. We will definitely do that. So, But I think this is really crucial is that some of these things that we're taught um, – can have unintended consequences, right? So the, I love that example you just gave. You see the papillary muscles kissing. You say, give them a liter of fluid. What you didn't see was that the RV is failing, and now you've just made it worse. Great. All right, so that's really important to keep in mind. All right, so let's move on from cardiac. Let's go to the lungs. What, if anything, can you tell about lung pathology from a POCUS exam? So we're seeing a lot of development with pulmonary ultrasound and POCUS, and I think that there is a huge amount of value for anesthesiologists working, in, working every day in the OR with this. Um, and um, we'll, we'll post a couple of pictures to show sort of what normal pulmonary ultrasound looks like. Um, with, with the common probes that folks have to do line placement, you can actually get some really great views and useful information. Essentially, what you're going to look for is pleural sliding. Uh, and 
You can also uh, demonstrate the presence of a pneumothorax or hemothorax. But really, again, thinking about picking up a probe with a binary yes or no question, if you do that same approach with pulmonary ultrasound, it can tell you a lot. We know that uh, it's incredibly accurate for diagnosing a mainstem intubation for sure, Mm. Um, much more accurate than the stethoscope. Uh, And uh, really, I imagine in 10, 15 years, if we're smart about it as a specialty, I think that we could could more quickly diagnose and treat them. And that's because you're looking, you're seeing no lung sliding on the, for example, if you're right mainstem, you see no lung sliding on the left, or is it because you're actually visualizing the tube itself? So what you, the former of what you said. Okay. So with the absence of, of titling or lung sliding along the pleura, um, particularly when you compare it to the other, the contralateral side, uh, you can, in the right clinical context, almost be sure that you have a mainstem intubation. Great. So that is a great use. Um, you mentioned pneumothorax and hemothorax. So are those kind of three things the main uh, pocus areas for in the pulmonary realm? I think when we think about basic pocus for anesthesiologists, I think it's really low-hanging fruit, and it's something that uh, you really only need 30 minutes to be shown how that works, how the views look different with different probes, um, and then be able to practice it and start to see the differences. Great. How about looking at, um, you know, trying to identify consolidation? Is that moving now more into the critical care ultrasound realm? That is. uh, And that is a little bit more dependent on what machines you're going to have available. The, uh, and I I believe uh, we'll we'll talk here in a second about some of the different probes that, uh, that you might grab for all of these different, uh, different indications. Yeah. Um, But, uh, but a microcurvilinear probe, which isn't present on most ultrasound machines, is going to be the best for actually looking at lung parenchyma. Okay. So we'll save that details of that for when we kind of delve more into the critical care ultrasound realm. Sounds great. How about abdominally? Is it, are we getting into kind of the FAST exam here or, or not? Exactly. So really looking at the four different quadrants of the abdomen uh, and the... Ultrasound is excellent at looking for uh, fluid collections and um, fluid that would be indicative of hematoma. So FAST stands for focused abdominal. Uh, no, that's not quite right. It's focused something. What is it, Lee? Yeah, Jed, it's the focused assessment with sonography for trauma. It's a bit of a, a uh, an alphabet soup, which, as you kind of feel, a lot of these are yeah, focus, focus, right. fast. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the abdominal ultrasound is really useful. The full fast exam includes the abdominal plus the cardiac. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously feel like, uh, we've given you all a good sense of what we believe focus of the heart is, but really looking at the abdomen, um, being able to look for bleeding and quickly increase your concern and likelihood of it, of it I think can dramatically change how the, your conversation, say in the PACU, is going to go with the surgeons that you're working with. Maybe it'll change what labs that you immediately send or even maybe the blood you decide to give. Yeah, absolutely. So my memory, and I haven't done this for a long time, but is that you kind of look on either flank. So you're looking for whether there's um, fluid pooled around the liver on one side, the spleen on the other. Um, 
uh, sometimes you see the kidneys in there too, and then you uh, look along around the bladder to see if there's uh, uh, blood um, around the bladder as well. Are those the main views you're going to look at for the abdominal portion? That's true, and we'll we'll put up a, an additional article for people to start to get uh, a reference of where to put the probe and what to look for. Um, clearly, scope of practice again is is very important to know your limitations uh, and to know what views are really important, what structures are critical to identify um, to be able to really define the different anatomic planes in the uh, in the peritoneum. Great. So we've talked about cardiac, pulmonary, and abdominal. Anything else that fits under the POCUS? I know that when we get into critical care ultrasound, sometimes we're doing things like looking at the eyes to figure out if there's, you know, um, uh, intracranial, elevated intracranial pressure, but I'm guessing that doesn't fit under the basic POCUS. Yeah, so this is really interesting in that uh, we are kind of blending in the critical care ultrasound, but POCUS is still being, defi- being defined for what we, we believe it should be for anesthesiologists. There's a good bit of work being done currently on the airway. Um, thinking about markers, say, for post-extubation strider or post-extubation failure. Um, I think I think the way I look at POCUS for the general anesthesiologist is really starting with these. Um, I think perhaps the, the last uh, that I'll sort of include into this um, would be uh, assessment of vessels both for cannulation but also for gross concerns. For instance, if you do a carotid endarterectomy, I think most uh, post-carotid endarterectomy, um, anesthesiologists should be really useful with an ultrasound in our hands. Uh, without question, we should know the anatomy in the neck from cannulating the internal jugular. I think you can put an ultrasound on, delineate those structures, and see if there's a developing hematoma. So I think that there is some basic focus otherwise that uh, of vascular anatomy that would certainly fit into uh, scope of practice. Great. And then, as you mentioned, certainly line placement. So these days, really, uh, standard of care is going to be to use an ultrasound, if you have it, for a right IJ, or I should say left or right IJ line placement, right? I mean, that's now, I think we've gotten to the point where you know, it's hard to justify not using an ultrasound um, unless you don't have one. That's correct. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing other developments too with, um, with subclavian um, uh, central line placement uh, using different techniques for ultrasound um, and, uh, and certainly for femoral cannulation as well, for arterial cannulation. It also can be useful and, and, and certainly for, for, for venous cannulation. Yep. Fantastic. All right. So you, we mentioned uh, before you mentioned the probe. Uh, so let's just tell me a little bit about that. Uh, we're, I'm guessing, not always using the exact same probe. Um, there's a different probe for cardiac than the one you're going to use to place a, a line. Yes. So again, you're touching on uh, my my echo nerd uh, nerves here, which gets me very excited. Excellent. Um, so. Um, as you go along with more training in ultrasound, you learn a lot about the physics of ultrasound, which govern the utility of different probes uh, that can tell you different things. So, um, so I'll just mention sort of three basic probes and how they differ so that 
um, it's a basis for for those of you listening to start thinking about how these how these work. Um, and then you might also then start to look up more of the complicated physics or come train with us and I'll teach you about it. Nice. So, so uh, first, uh, linear probes are really excellent for stationary objects. And linear probes are what we commonly use for line placement. They're usually higher frequency so that they visualize superficial structures with higher resolution. Um, and so linear probes are, as I said, great for line placement, for visualizing the internal jugular or arteries or, say, that carotid endarterectomy patient we discussed. Uh, a linear probe is also really useful for looking at the pleura. So this is sort of a pearl in that in most places where you have a line to look at an IJ, you can look at the pleura. It's pretty much the same probe. Um, it's just a matter of where you put it and what you interpret what you see. So, um, you know, we'll put a little resource on, on, on there perhaps about the blue protocol so that you can all, all start to see a little bit of the basics of that. That's great. What is it called? How did the, you? Uh, the blue protocol. Blue, like BLUE? BLUE, okay. yeah. And that was developed um, by uh, Lichtenstein. Is... Okay. Well, great. We'll definitely put a reference to that. Um, all right. So that's a linear probe. What's the second? Secondly is the phased array probe. So this is what you commonly see for cardiac ultrasound. Um, and so it it works quite differently from linear ultrasound in that it is both sending out ultrasound and listening to the ultrasound as it returns. And it does that over a field over time. So as you can as you can kind of imagine me describing that, you are filling a space with more ultrasound waves per second in time. Um, and what this enables is better resolution of objects in motion as opposed to that linear probe that works a little bit differently that looks at stationary objects. So your phase array probes also penetrate tissue better and so can look at really deep structures. That's why phased array probes are indispensable for cardiac ultrasound. Great. All right. And then what's the third? Before I get to there, I'll yeah. say that phased array probes are also really useful looking at the lungs. So um, the lungs are sort of amenable to both of these different um, uh, different technologies. The, the resolution is going to be very different, but you'll certainly see lung sliding better uh, you'll see the motion better with the phased array, but you won't see the detail at the level of the pleura as good as you would with linear ultrasound. Great. And then leading into the third one is a is it's called a curvilinear probe. So what a curvilinear probe is essentially similar technology to a linear probe, but it literally has a slope in it. Um, and uh, essentially, what that enables is uh, a larger a larger viewing area and deeper tissue resolution than what the linear probe enabled that I mentioned before. Okay. So curvilinear gives you deeper even than the curvilinear. That's correct. And so give me an example of what you're going to use that for. So the curvilinear is great for abdominal ultrasound. So you don't have to worry about moving objects like the heart. Um, and uh, it, it allows you to really try to delineate where um, where fluid might be. Great. All right. So people out there are going to want to know, A, 
what kind of training do I need to learn this stuff? And how do I get it? So my vision is, is that probably this is going to be incorporated into anesthesiology residencies as we've been doing here mm-hmm. um, uh, for a good bit of time. But no, that's obviously not sufficient for the general working population um, out, out in, in the community now that didn't have the opportunity to train in residency for that. And I think really uh, if you look at the different professional societies, there are wonderful two, three-day courses um, that certainly will arm folks with a good bit of skills. But mm-hmm. but as I've repeated multiple times, you really have to be aware of what your scope of practice and what your ability is. Uh, so I think that this is really a point of research here at Hopkins. How can we both – distribute these skills, but then maintain them for folks of where they're really making a difference at the bedside. Um, I think probably repeating different, um, different activities with ultrasound is, is certainly a way to do that. Um, and I think, you know, the ASA is looking to build curricula that provide stimulating repeat experiences for people so that they maintain their skills. Absolutely. And then if people are thinking, yep, I already got this down, I've got my POCA skills, I'm doing this all the time, then the next level, so to speak, uh, that we will do at another day is to talk, I think, about critical care ultrasound. Now, I guess you could say you can go one of two ways. You can do the critical care ultrasound stuff, which is really interesting and I think absolutely up and coming with the new exam that now exists. And then there's the other way, which you went, which I, I think is a very um, is probably more intense and um, less common, which would be to do kind of the cardiology type training. Exactly. I think that uh, that next level is is probably the critical care ultrasound, uh, and look forward to talking to you about what the requirements are to really do that. To be honest with you, I think it could really revolutionize critical care anesthesiology as a specialty, and its role not only at academic institutions like our own, but critical care anesthesiology graduates even going to all different private practice uh, groups. I, I, I think it it could be the opportunity to create a local expert for these groups to really be available to evaluate someone in, uh, in extremis um, with more bedside capabilities than just what someone with focus training alone might allow. Absolutely. Well, Lee, this is fantastic. Anything you think we should add before we sign off? No, uh, I think that um, anyone interested, uh, uh, hope you enjoy the resources that we provide uh, and um, look forward to talking more and developing this part of our, our whole specialties practice in anesthesiology. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, that's it. That was great. I hope this was useful. Obviously, uh, this is just the kind of audio intro and then go check out the images if you want to really delve into this. Um, this is something that I think is really where the future here is going to be. Let us know what you thought. Go to ACRAC.com. Leave a comment. We can all learn from what you have to say. You can, of course, see all of the episodes and leave a comment on any of them by going to ACCRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already or even if you have but not for a little while, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, 
please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRACT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Of course, you can also make a donation in any amount at any time that you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRACT. That's P-A-Y-P-A-L dot M-E slash A-C-C-R-A-C. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to Brian Park for the outlines he does for some of the shows. And our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. Thank you, Dennis, for the amazing music you make for us. All right. That is it. Thank you so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Lee Goodell, I'm Jeff Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.